Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, church. Would you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19? We're going to be covering the second half of chapter 19 this morning, and so in your Bibles, read along with me or follow along on the screens or on your congregation notes as I read what Luke records beginning in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And after having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord, amen? The writer of Psalm 119 makes this declaration in what is the longest chapter and one of the most God-exalting chapters of the entire Bible. The psalmist says this, the unfolding of your words gives light. The unfolding of your words gives light. The motto of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago was post tenenbrass lux, 
out of darkness, light. This is a spiritual reality that goes much further back than the Reformation. In the Old Testament, as we see reflected in Psalm 119, uh, God's people considered his word to be a lamp unto their feet and a what? A light unto their path. God's people were considered the light of the nations. Uh, in the incarnation, we see, which we're about to celebrate in Christmas, we see light born into darkness. Jesus himself says in John's gospel that he is the what? The light of the world. Similarly, Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels that, that we as his people, as his disciples, as his followers are the light of the world. All throughout Acts, we see Peter and Paul proclaiming the gospel into darkness and we see light chasing away the darkness. History is full of great awakenings where men of God stand up confidently and resolutely on the truth of his word. They declare the gospel, they preach his word, and revival follows. Why is that? It's because the unfolding of his words give light. Amen? You see, the light of God's word, the light of God's truth, always pushes back the darkness in this world. I think this truth is on display uh, in this text and more broadly in all of chapter 19. The title of my sermon this morning is The Gospel in the City. And I've chosen this title because this text before us really is uh, a recounting of events that are indicative of a city that has been utterly turned on its head by the light of the gospel. The gospel came to a city called Ephesus. The gospel challenged this city called Ephesus. And the gospel changed this city called Ephesus. And that brings me to a question that I want us to consider together this morning. What does it take for the gospel to change a city? What does it take for the gospel to change a city? Now, before we can answer this question, I want to invest just a few moments kind of situating these events uh, in their context in Acts. Chapter 19 of Acts as a whole is a recounting of Paul's missionary work in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus presents for us, even as modern Christians today, an incredible case study. Uh, Ephesus was located in a region of the ancient world that we call Asia Minor. And how, how many of us remember the book of Revelation? Ho hopefully all of us. Uh, when, John, when John wrote uh, Revelation, he recorded in that, in that writing um, the risen and reigning Jesus speaking to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. These seven churches were all historic churches um, in this region of the ancient world that we call Asia Minor. They're highlighted on the map uh, with yellow dots. Of these seven ancient churches that Jesus spoke to in Revelation, Ephesus is the first one that's recorded by John, probably because it was the most prominent church uh, in that region. So in our scriptures, um, in our Bible, which is a historical record, we have a letter to the church in Ephesus. We have uh, the letter to the Ephesians. We have uh, correspondence by way of John directly from Jesus to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. We have uh, chapter 19 in the book of Acts. And so what does Luke record 
uh, in chapter 19. First of all, we see that Paul heads into Ephesus, and when he arrives in Ephesus, he finds some disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't yet received the full gospel. And so Paul um, leads them from John to Jesus. They're saved. Then he goes into the synagogue, which is his custom. He begins ministering to the population, um, the local Jewish community. After a time, he's run out of the synagogue. Um, And then Luke tells us that Paul begins teaching in this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. This is in the first half of chapter 19. Now, I'm going to come back to the Hall of Tyrannus in just a little bit. But Luke tells us that as Paul is commencing his ministry in Ephesus, that as he was ministering, as he was teaching, that God was doing extraordinary miracles by his hands. This is important because Paul is bringing the gospel into a city that was extraordinarily concerned with and steeped in ancient power and magic. Now, as a consequence of these great things that God was doing through the hands of Paul, many people came to faith and we see um, that many people were repenting, that they were uh, confessing their sin, divulging uh, their practices, and a whole group of Christians uh, in the city burned all their magical books and artifacts that were valued uh, at 50,000 pieces of silver, which if you adjust for inflation, is a lot of money. Now, what I want us to note is that Ephesus was a city that was literally built on a foundation of idolatry. It was a city that was shrouded uh, in darkness. It was the capital of worship in Asia Minor to the ancient goddess Artemis. Uh, The people of Asia Minor thought Artemis was the supreme deity. Uh, In Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the only wonder of the ancient world that's standing today are the pyramids in Egypt. Uh, This temple was larger than a modern football field. It served as the basis of the local economy. It was even a banking and financial center. The whole economy was built around the Artemis cult in Ephesus. And the Ephesian people, and, and not just the Ephesian people, all the people of Asia Minor really believed that Artemis was the source of power, the source of safety, and the source of hope. Artemis was at the very center of their worldview. Now I want to restate the question that I asked you. What does it take for the gospel to change the city? The quality that I want to emphasize this morning, the first quality in your notes that is needed for the gospel to change a city, I believe, is relentless faith. Relentless faith. I think Paul exhibits relentless faith in his mission to Ephesus. And specifically, I think that relentless faith is exhibited through his unwavering commitment tirelessly to one thing, to unfold the Word of God for the people, to teach the Word of God. Look at what Luke records back in uh, chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Two years! Now it turns out that some of the Greek manuscripts containing uh, chapter 19, containing this passage, Uh, include a note. And this note doesn't change the meaning of the passage, but it it kind of adds higher definition. Are you with me? 
And this note says that Paul taught in the hall of Tyrannus from the fifth hour to the tenth hour daily. So that would be from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. our time. John Stott, who's uh, one of Pastor Andrew and I's favorite commentators on the book of Acts, um, helps kind of unpack the significance of this. So I want to just paraphrase some of uh, what he has noted as a consequence of of this note in in some of the Greek manuscripts. So historians of the the period that Paul was ministering in Ephesus in noted um, that public life regularly ended uh, at the fifth hour of the day, or 11 a.m. So public life, your work day would begin around sunrise. It would continue through the cool part of the day. It would continue through the morning, um, and it would conclude at 11 a.m. Now, the first thing I thought when I read this was, I'm a little jealous, because it'd be nice to have a work day that ended at 11. And at 11 a.m., uh, pretty much the whole town would stop their work. They would go home, and they would siesta. They'd take a nice nap. Um, And historians think that probably in Ephesus and and maybe even beyond Ephesus and all of Asia Minor, um, more people were sound asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. But here's where I'm going with this. We know that Paul didn't sleep in the daytime. Until 11 11 a.m., Paul was working just like the rest of the city, but he wasn't doing gospel work. Until 11 a.m., he was working at his leather-making craft. He was uh, working at his tent-making, during which Tyrannus, who was a a famous Greek philosopher, would be teaching in his his public hall, in his public space. But then uh, when the the workday ended at the fifth hour, at 11 a.m., Tyrannus would leave his lecture hall, his lecture school, and he would go siesta, but then Paul would sublet it, and then he would trade his kind of leather working and go to lecture working. He would, he would trade the thing that he did to make a living to go uh, do gospel work, and he would go lecture for five hours in the hall of Tyrannus from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, for those of you who are mathematicians, you'll appreciate this. Assuming that Paul kept the Sabbath, which he probably did because he was uh, a Jewish man, one day out of seven for worship and rest, um, he will have given uh, six days a week, five hours a day for two years, which makes 3,120 hours of gospel argument, of gospel instruction in that city. 3,120 hours. That's a lot of Jesus. Are you with me? That's a significant body of work. So in light of that, it's not surprising that Luke concludes in chapter 19 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Notice that Luke doesn't say all the residents of Ephesus. He says all the residents of what? Of Asia, of that whole region of the earth. How is it? It's such a wide gospel reach like this is possible in just two years. How does a man bring the gospel to all of Asia Minor in just two years? Well, part of that is a function of Paul's gospel strategy. You see, he understood that in Asia Minor, all roads led to Ephesus. He knew that uh, the inhabitants of Asia visited Ephesus from all over Asia. They came maybe to buy or sell. Maybe they came to visit family or friends. Maybe they came to participate um, in the, the games in the local stadium or to observe a drama 
in the theater, he knew for certain that people came from all over Asia to worship the goddess Artemis and to participate in uh, the religion of the land whose capital was in Ephesus. And he knew that when people came to Ephesus that they would hear about this Christian lecturer named Paul who was talking about Jesus and unpacking the gospel, unfolding the word of God for five hours a day, six days a week for two years. And evidently people would come and that they would listen and as they listened they would be converted. And then what would happen when those people came to visit Ephesus, heard Paul, were converted by hearing the gospel? They would go back home as born-again believers. So the gospel would have spread all over Asia Minor. People in Smyrna, in Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, all those churches that are named in Revelation 2 or 3, all those people would have come, would have heard Paul, and would have brought the gospel back to where they lived. So we see at work the words of the psalmist who says that the unfolding of your words gives light. What is Paul but an example of slow and steady, faithful unfolding of God's word, communication of the gospel? You see, if the gospel is thoroughly unfolded, if it it takes root in the city, then when visitors to the city come hear it, some will embrace it, many will embrace it, then they'll take it back, they'll export it to their homes, share it with their family, friends, and community. Does that make sense? So we have to marvel at the magnificent an effective missionary strategy of Paul. I think tragically in our culture today, this strategy is being used more by secularists than by Christians. Think, for example, about the university system in our culture. Every major city has one or more major universities. We have amazing institutions like the University of Southern California. We also have UCLA. You know, what do people around the country do? They, they send their children to our amazing institutions where they hear lectures for hours and hours and hours a day. They're secularized, and then they go home and export that secular message. I don't think we as Christians fully appreciate, and I don't think our lives are sufficiently informed by how strategic Paul was on his missionary journeys. Uh, this is the reason that all throughout Acts, Paul went to cities on all three of his missionary journeys, because he knew that if he could establish the gospel in the city, then the gospel would be positioned to, to spread to surrounding regions and to related populations. If he could establish the gospel in Ephesus, then it would spread to the other cities of Asia Minor. Thus, we have what is recorded in John's revelation being directed to the seven cities of Asia. What I want us to perceive is this truth. That Paul's missionary strategy, his strategy to promote the gospel, is not a passive strategy, but an active one. He doesn't wait for people to come to him. Rather, he goes in to the world. Now, after spending a lot of time meditating um, on this, not just on this passage, but also just on the whole book of Acts this year, um, I'm convinced that as modern Christians, uh, we need to recapture Paul's vision in Paul's heart for the gospel in the city. You see, Jesus says that as his people, we are the light of the world, right? He says that we're the salt of the earth. Jesus even uses the analogy of a city. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be what? Cannot be hidden. 
So I think Paul's example and strategy should, should compel us, it should inspire us, but it should also convict us of the importance of being on mission together um, here in the city, here in Los Angeles. I think that there's always a cost, however, to being on mission uh, with Jesus, on mission for Jesus, uh, especially in the city. I've said in the past that Jesus did not die for the American dream. Jesus did not die for the American dream. Jesus died that we could be redeemed as sinners, that we could be uh, brought into his kingdom, that we could be brought into fellowship with him. And he died in some sense that we would deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. Amen? And I think that as modern Christians living in a land of wealth and opportunity, we need to recognize not just in the example of Paul, but even more importantly, in the call of Jesus, the need to reverse some priorities. How many of us are familiar with the word pagan? Did you know that the word pagan did not originally refer to non-believers? I mean, the word wasn't a synonym for non-believers originally. Uh, originally, the word pagan meant rural. It referred to people who lived outside the city. But as Christianity spread through the ancient world and as the Roman Empire was Christianized, uh, eventually, in cities just like Ephesus, eventually um, the cities became centers of Christian life and thought. And people who wanted to hold on to the Greco-Roman uh, pagan religion, to the, to, the, to, the, to the idol worship of the past, moved out of the cities to rural areas so that they could remain loyal to their false gods. Does that make sense? So people left the cities because the cities became too Christian for them. They moved to rural areas, and so they were then referred to as pagans. Not first because they were non-believers, but because in order to live as non-believers, they moved to rural areas. So the rural peoples became known as pagans. I think what's tragic is that in American culture today, the pattern is often reversed. Uh, Christians, by and large, have abandoned the cities to flee to the suburbs. Maybe it's to escape the strongholds of secularism. Maybe it's to build a home where you know, our precious dollar gets us as much as possible. I think generally the motivation in some sense or another is to find a better or more comfortable life, to find more ease and opportunity. But when we look to Paul's example, we don't see a man running from pagan cities, but rather infiltrating them and laboring with relentless faith to establish a gospel stronghold, which would flip the spiritual script in that city. And what was he committed to doing with relentless faith? Unfolding your word, which gives light. We know that Paul worked sacrificially in the city for his, with his hands in chapter 20, the next chapter of, of, of Acts, we see Paul in this like really bittersweet moment of saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, the elders that he raised up right here uh, in Ephesus. And he, he tells them that, that he was faithful to, to, to labor diligently in the city with his hands because he didn't want anybody to be able to say that 
his gospel ministry there was just a way of being paid, of getting a paycheck, of, of earning money. And so early in the morning when everybody was at work, he labored to make a living. And then he lectured on the gospel, but he worked hard. He, he was on the grind in the city in order to bring the gospel to the city. Does that make sense? I think that we can learn from his example. You see, Los Angeles is anything but a fountainhead of Christian thought and living, right? The South Bay is anything but a nexus of the gospel. It's crowded, it's expensive, and it's very secular, right? How many of us feel that at times? But here's the thing. In his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, God has planted me here in the South Bay of Los Angeles, and God has planted you here in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Why? I'll tell you why not. Not primarily to be happy and successful and comfortable. You want to know why? Why God has planted us here? Primarily to be salt and light, to be a city set upon a hill which cannot be hidden. He's planted us here, church, to be on mission for the fame of his name. And this is the kind of sacrificial perspective that requires relentless faith, like the kind of relentless faith that Paul exhibits. I know what you're thinking. Well, of course, you see, it's Paul. I mean, he was special. Yeah, he was an apostle. But what was the key to Paul's influence? It wasn't an overly charismatic personality. It wasn't, you know, a grand display of pyrotechnics in his ministry context. It wasn't a clever marketing strategy. It wasn't a financial or political power or influence in the farewell speech that he gives to the Ephesian elders, which I've already referenced, Paul reminds them, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Night and day, for a period of years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So what did Paul's influence flow from? It flowed from his devotion to the Lord, and it flowed from his devotion to the word of truth. As I was thinking about this passage, as I was meditating and praying and wondering how in the world am I going to preach this passage, I just happened upon, just happened upon, you know, it's funny how those things work. I just happened upon this blog post that the Gospel Coalition published uh, just a couple days ago. It's titled, The Amazing Story of Frank Barker in Campus Outreach. I've supplied a condensed link for you in your notes. I want to encourage you all to go home and read this blog post. But for those of us who immediately dismiss the things I'm saying in our minds and we think, well, that's not me, that's Paul. I mean, he was an apostle, he was special. Of course he could go into Ephesus. Of course he could go into a city and labor and have relentless faith and all that stuff. You know, it's Paul. I want you to consider the example of Frank Barker. One man. And this story recounts the life of a man from Alabama whose commitment to personal evangelism was unquestionably the driving force behind the growth of a church that he took over that was virtually dead, that he grew to over 4,000 members. And it was his personal evangelism and commitment to unfolding, to opening the word of the Lord for everyone who would listen to him that gave rise to one of the most prolific campus ministries in the history of our country. You see, this is the story of how God used the faith the, the relentless faith 
of a very ordinary guy who was just determined to live out his call to share Jesus with people. A guy who was flawed and limited, just like you and me, but despite the fact that he was flawed and limited and was confronted by fear and anxiety, he just had a massive view of God. He understood that where he was small and weak, God was big and strong. And this article says that if you meet a Christian in Birmingham who is 60 or older and you ask them how they came to Christ, I'd bet my money that at some point they'd mention Frank Barker. Wow, what a testimony. It continues, the 86-year-old Barker had led many thousands to Christ. His daughter Peggy Towns estimated 10,000 personally and hundreds of thousands through his ministry. I can't say that I've led a hundred people to Christ personally, let alone a thousand, let alone 10,000 people to Christ. But it wasn't because he loved talking to people. He's not a gregarious personality or even a compelling speaker. I'd just like to settle in and read a book, he said. But the Bible tells us to reach out to others, so I had to discipline myself to do that. Wow. Here's a man, flawed, weak, human, just like you and me, not a superman like Paul, but who recognized that he had to count the cost of following Jesus and discipline himself to talk to other people about Jesus. And fast forward several decades, by God's grace and with his empowering presence, this man has been used by God to humbly lead 10,000 people personally to Christ to pastor a church and build it to 4,000 members, to launch a campus ministry which has reached hundreds of thousands of students. And it wasn't because he loved talking to people. It wasn't because he was a magnificent and gifted personality. It wasn't because he was a compelling speaker. It was simply because he recognized that the Bible tells us to reach out to others and he disciplined himself by faith to do that. Now I want to briefly look at the first main section of our passage today. That was all my introduction. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. <clears throat> In light of Paul's relentless faith, it's so much easier for us to understand the words of Demetrius beginning in verse 23. Who says, about that, so about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Amen to that. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. These are the words of a man dedicated to a pagan religion. These are the words of a man whose very livelihood depends upon people's sticking to that pagan religion. And these are the words of a man who's running scared, inciting a riot, trying to drive Paul and Christians out of Ephesus, Ephesus because the gospel is pushing back the darkness. How do we know that Christianity was turning Ephesus on its head? Because it began to significantly affect and impair its pagan economy. We always know when truth sinks in because it affects the way we use our money. 
And over a period of just two to three years, enough people had believed the gospel and were turning away from the Artemis cult that the local artisans who depended on the people buying shrines and figurines and sacrifices were feeling it in their wallets. So this guy Demetrius attempts to incite a riot in order to undermine Paul and drive out the way. Here's the supreme irony. In verse 27, Demetrius says that there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. And you know what's so ironic about that? It's exactly what happened. One man with relentless faith brought the message of the cross into Ephesus, and that message ultimately toppled a world religion. You know what else is ironic? Today, Jesus is still reigning, and the gospel is still spreading, and in Ephesus, I've been there, I've seen the ruins. The temple of Artemis, standing at one time as one of the seven wonders of the world, is no more than a pile of ancient rubble. Now, I made the decision kind of ex post facto to focus primarily on the first point in my notes. And so I'm not going to go through the second two points, but I know that I'm going to get tons of calls this week if I don't at least give you the fill-ins. <laughs> so, for your own edification, I think that <clears throat> what's required for the gospel to change a city is also radical repentance and responsible methods. And if your heart is burning and aching for that to be unpacked for you, then make an appointment with me, and I'd be happy to do a Bible study with you. But I want to call our attention to something. You see, the Ephesians believed that this goddess Artemis was their source of power and their source of safety and their source of hope. And Paul faithfully shows up and slowly and steadily grinds and works and labors and teaches and lectures and interacts with the people. And for two to three years, he tells them what the one true source of these things actually is. He tells them that it's not Artemis, that it's Jesus who is their true source of power, safety, and hope. I think that when we look at passages like this and we see such massive cultural impact, we think that things like that could really only happen in Acts. They could really only happen with people like Paul. But here's the thing. The problem of the church today is not that the gospel has lost its power or relevance. The problem is that Christians don't believe it. The problem is that most Christians don't really believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Most Christians don't truly believe that the unfolding of God's word brings light. You see, if we really believed the gospel, if we really believed that apart from the intervening, atoning work of Christ, 
apart from God's gracious initiative on our behalf, that we stood under his judgment righteously, justly. That apart from the good news of Jesus, that we stood condemned, that everyone around us stood condemned. If we really, really believed that, then we tell people. We'd be moved by it. It would take high priority in our lives. We could say that we don't tell people about Jesus because maybe we're apathetic in some way, or maybe we're discouraged, or, or maybe we're distracted by all the things of this world. Regardless of what it is, whatever that thing is, we believe that more than we believe the gospel. You see, Paul, he went into Ephesus and he said that Artemis does not provide security. Artemis does not have power. Let me tell you about the one who truly has power and authority. Let me tell you where to tr find true peace. Let me tell you the name of the one who has power and authority to forgive your sin. And that name is Jesus. I think that if Paul's example in this passage shows us anything, it's that he just believed very simply that the unfolding of his words, God's words, gives light. And in this passage, you could easily think that I'm calling us to look to the example of Paul and to look to the example of the Ephesian church. And in some sense, I am calling us to do that. But I want to draw a distinction. Our confidence is not in Paul. And our confidence is not in the Ephesian church. Our confidence is in the God who is in Paul. And our confidence is in the God who worked in and through the Ephesian church. And in our culture today, we're not tempted to worship some goddess named Artemis, but we do live in a landscape of secular idol worship. I read one commentator who referenced an article written by a non-believer who observed this pattern in our broader culture. In Boston, people tend to worship the intellect. In Washington, D.C., people worship power. In New York City, people worship money. Los Angeles, people worship sex, entertainment, leisure. All these things compete for our affection and for our attention in this culture. And so what's the answer? How do we respond to the pull, the draw of our culture? Is it just to look like Paul? Is it to, to just be more like Paul? To just work really hard and be more like him? No, that's not the answer. He provides an example for us. But the power is not in Paul. The power is in the one who is working in Paul. And the only way to be more like him is to be more like the one who called him. The only way to push away the darkness of this world, the only way to not just push it away, but to infiltrate it for the sake of the gospel, is to love Jesus more. Is to behold his beauty. To seek him, to cherish him to walk with him. We need to remember Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all the things this world has to offer. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. Jesus is risen. Jesus is reigning. And Jesus is returning. That's the message that we carry. And as we consider Christmas, as we consider the season that's upon us, 
It's easy for us to think about all the things that we want and need. But what we really need is more Jesus. We need more of him. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which gives light. We thank you that you've called us out of the darkness into the light through the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit. As we look to the example of Paul and how you used a man to do magnificent works on your behalf, Lord, we pray that you would build in us a supreme affection for your son. Jesus, that our hearts would be full that they would spill over with gratitude on account of the great work that you have done on our behalf in atoning for our sin, of hanging as our substitute, of drinking the cup of the Father's wrath on our behalf. Father, I pray that as you fill our hearts with gratitude, that our lives would overflow in bearing witness faithfully to the truth of the gospel for the fame of your name, and that we would bear witness faithfully in this city, in Los Angeles, in the South Bay, that we would be a people who aren't consumed by the things of the world and preoccupied with all that it has to offer, but that we would be a people who are truly on mission for the sake of your kingdom. Jesus, as we approach the communion table today, by your spirit, convict our hearts and encourage our hearts. Draw us nearer to you, that we might be conformed even more closely to your likeness. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.